how we might approach wanting to be married, uh, what kind of qualities we would look for in a mate, our wish list, our want list, the things that we're looking for, searching for, hoping we might find. And then we spent some time discussing our husband-to-be, Christ himself, and saw that he has every quality that we could possibly have dreamed or fantasized of, that he is perfect, nothing wrong with him whatsoever, and he is the perfect ten, to use the scale that has been used in the world of analyzing males and females as to where they fall on the desirable list. You can't find anything better than Christ himself. And you might as well just quit looking because it would be futile to even try. So that's what he is. I'm going to look at it from a little different angle today, and let's discuss more what he is looking for. Because if he's a perfect ten, he's going to want someone of commensurate value uh, a ten doesn't look for a four, even though a four might look for a ten in our human world. So, we have to analyze from Scripture what it is that he is looking for. Now, the Bible clearly shows that he is going to have a bride. She is going to consist of 144,000 individuals to make up the wholeness of the bride. So, he is going to find what it is that he is looking for, obviously, because he's going to marry her. So, let's analyze a bit today what that might be, because he has a list also. Now, to start this, I want to go to Isaiah 51 and verse 1 uh, to tie together something, because we're going to look at a, an analogy in a little bit, and we need to review what it is that we are looking at, and what the spiritual uh, ramifications might be. Isaiah 51, he says, Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. So, Isaiah is calling on those who are seeking God, who are seeking righteousness, to listen to what he has to say here. Well, he's not talking to the world in general. He's talking to those who seek righteousness. You that seek the eternal, look to the rock whence you are hewn. And we know from Ephesians 2 and many other scriptures that Christ is the rock that we were hewn from. But this story goes back in time to a, an analogy to uh, other beings that were held as types. So when he says, the rock to whence you were hewn, obviously in the New Testament that would appear, that would be Christ himself. But that's not what he mentions right here. To the rock whence you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from where you were digged. Now that analogy would probably be of mining. Uh, you dig a hole in the ground not to find sand or dirt normally, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for gems or gold or silver or something of high value when you dig a pit or a mine. So he says, if you're looking for holiness, for righteousness, for God, you need to look from the mine 
that you came from to see what similarities there might be between you and the dirt you were dug from. And then he gets specific. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, Sarah that bear you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. He called only Abraham at the time that Abraham was called. No other human being was called except Abraham and ultimately his family, Sarah along with him. But he didn't call a lot of people at that time. He found one faithful, strong human being who would seek after and be faithful to God. So he says, look back to Abraham and Sarah. So Isaiah is instructing us here, if we're looking for righteousness and seeking God, we should look at Abraham and Sarah. Let's tie that in then with Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 speaks of quite a few people who not only were candidates, but are listed here as members of the Bride of Christ, some that he is willing to say have made it. But he spends quite a bit of this chapter about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I want to specifically address Abraham and Sarah here. Uh, verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. God just said, Go, look for a city, and he obeyed. He may not have known right where he was going, exactly what he was looking for, and it says it here. He went out not knowing where he went. He was looking for something elusive, something that he did not fully understand. Now, whether we're talking of the physical place, maybe he had some idea what part of the world to go to, but he did not know the details. It might be some like somebody tells you, go back east and find Philadelphia, but they give you no map. So you know your, the direction you're going, you know kind of what you're looking for if you happen to see the city limits sign, but nobody told you how to get there. You didn't know where you're going. You didn't know how to find it, really. So he was not knowing where he went. <clears throat> now he turns this to righteousness in a little bit, and more spiritual goals that Abraham was seeking, and he didn't have a lot of clues there either, just as we who are seeking righteousness find it a very elusive thing to find. <clears throat> we don't have Christ standing here to look at in every detail and say, that is exactly what I'm looking for. We have descriptions of him. We have various scriptures that tie in together that we looked at last week that indicate what his character, his personality, his being is all about. But it's still elusive to us because it's hard for us to grasp true righteousness and holiness. Anyway, it says in verse 9, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, so he made it to the land that God was promising him, wasn't where his family were living. He had left his home, his family, and gone seeking a place. 
So he was in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So God would promise to Isaac and to Jacob the same things he had promised Abraham, both in terms of physical land as well as spiritual blessing and ultimately the kingdom of God. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't looking for just any place, any city, anything that he might like. He was instructed specifically to find a city whose maker was God. There aren't many cities on this earth that you might travel to in your journey whose maker and builder is God. That would be a very rare town indeed, would it not? There's only one place where he said his name, actually. And it's desolate at the moment. So we're looking for something that's elusive. We don't know exactly where he is, even from a physical standpoint, much less a spiritual. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Yeah, it struck her funny. She had trouble believing it. There was a certain incredulous thing there to try to swallow. And even Abraham himself chuckled because they were both to the point where that wasn't possible on a physical human standpoint. But they believed God in spite of the physical circumstances they found themselves in. Something totally impossible. She was way past menopause. He was way past any capacity along those lines. They were approaching a hundred years of age after all. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. There are very, very few people, I think, who have ever drawn breath on this earth. If you approached them when they were octogenarian and up, 90, centurion, or not, I can't quite say the word, hundred years old, and you told them, you're going to have a child, and they would be saying, you're the one that needs to be in a nursing home drooling from your chin, not me. I'm not going to have a child at my age. And if God himself said it, they'd have trouble believing it. But they believed him, even, even after they had chuckled and laughed. It took a little doing to get them into a truly believing state of mind. But they got there. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them far off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They had such a faith and an enduring belief in God, and he told them of the physical things that were going to happen, over a period of life. Now, Abraham, when he married, or when he and Sarah had a child, Isaac, by God's intervention and healing, still had a way to look 
a way to go. Isaac would be reared, Sarah would die, Abraham would remarry and live another roughly 75 years. He died when he was 175 years old, and he married a woman probably roughly 100 years younger than him and had lots of kids. So the healing God gave Abraham was more than just to produce Isaac. But he had to live that another 75 years looking for very elusive spiritual promises and then die not having seen them. He saw to a degree the physical promises God had made through Isaac and through the inheritance of the land. And he watched Isaac and then his grandson Jacob growing up (coughs) and Jacob having children and began to see at least the physical ramifications of the promises God had made. But he died not having received the spiritual promises. Now let's look at ourselves that way. God has made us certain physical promises that I think we have seen clearly in the Scriptures for some things that will happen before this age even ends. And then we have the spiritual promises that extend beyond. But I have known many, many people in my experience in life in the church from childhood on where I have seen people who were old when I was a child who died in the faith. Aunts, uncles, cousins, acquaintances, church members throughout all those decades, I've seen grow old and die not having seen the promises. Many of them were faithful to the end. Abraham never gave up. He remained faithful. He remained true to God through everything. And they confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Can't really take hold. You know, I have I thought back on that and looking at that. We've all seen those scriptures about how we're ambassadors for Christ here on the earth. Most people growing up in this nation, and in other nations too, to one degree or another, have a certain expectancy that things will remain as they are, the status quo will be maintained, that the American dream is intact, that they could be pursuing life, liberty, and happiness, that they would have the guarantees of the constitutions and its a constitution and its amendments, so that they could get an education, so they could go out into the world and seek a profession, a job, something to do, and that they had a reasonable expectancy of success, perhaps wealth, and the kind of life that it is that they desired. And most people growing up around me had that expectation, but you know what? I didn't. From the time I was seven, eight years of old, I sat around and listened to my uncle reading Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report and telling me about how wild beasts would come into this land and they would kill people and how we'd be taken down and go through famine and pestilence and all those things. And I have had that expectancy in my life, throughout my life. I never figured things were such that I could go out and pursue them the way other people, my classmates in high school or grade school did. I couldn't do that 
because I was anticipating the end, and I was carefully examining the watch. Is it going to be in 72, 82? Pick a number. 2015, here we are. So, life for God's people, i use a personal example there of my viewpoint growing up and through my life, I never expected to have children. I certainly never expected grandchildren. Never thought this world would last that long. So you grow through life, in a sense, not settled the way other people are. You go through it as a stranger and a pilgrim. Because you know it's transitory. It only will last so long. And it will get worse and worse and worse. So you do things differently, perhaps, than other people around you would because you have this certain worldview and mindset and kingdom view of what will be. So these people looked upon life as well as strangers and pilgrims on earth expecting some promises from God that turned out to be a long, long way away. They lived out their lives and died and still didn't receive it. And here we are, thousands of years later, and it still hasn't happened. And God let the disciples in the early New Testament church have the same worldview. They thought Christ would be returning soon and in their lifetimes. And then they were killed or died, and it still hadn't happened. And here we are 2,000 years later. And it still hasn't happened. And they're lying in their graves still waiting. They don't know it, but they are. So your experience and mine is quite a bit shorter than theirs in one sense. And we know, do we not, that this will happen now very quickly and probably within our lifetimes. But we're still strangers and pilgrims, wondering how, when, and just how will this come down. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. I grew up in America. I love it. I love this nation and the beauty and the creation that God made in it. But it's not what I'm after. I'm after the kingdom of God. That's the country I'm looking for. So even though I truly admire and enjoy the beauty when I get to see it of this nation and this around us right here even. I'm looking for something better, something more eternal, something that will last forever. <clears throat> Seems like a long time coming sometimes, doesn't it? But it's coming, and we've got to believe that. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from where they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. You know, Abraham was sent away, and if he had really wanted to go back where he came from, he might could have returned. But he knew God had sent him there for a purpose, and going back was not an option for him. It's not what he wanted to do. He was not only thankful for what God had sent him to, but he was looking for something even better in the future. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And Christ spoke of that, and we, we mentioned it last week. He'll go back and build us many mansions or homes or offices or whatever and bring it to us. 
It's going to come down from God in heaven there in Revelation 21. So then, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. So here we see the analogy between the father and the son, spiritually speaking, in Abraham and Isaac and in Sarah as representation of the church or of Israel. And this is the son that God designated and appointed that the promises would come through Isaac. Now, Abraham and Sarah waffled on that little bit and said, well, couldn't it come through Ishmael? Why does it have to be Isaac? But they accepted that. And then when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac, after all those promises, that would have been a very, very difficult situation. Isaac was a special child, given by a special miracle from God Almighty, several miracles. And he simply accounted that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. It was his, he was as good as dead. So the metaphor stands. And by Isaac... By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob, and so on. I won't go into the rest of the story. But I want to go now to Genesis 24 and tie this together, because there's a very important story here in terms of what we are considering with Christ looking for his bride. Go back to Genesis 24. So we've established here and reviewed that we are to look to Abraham and to Isaac. And in Hebrews 11... The background and quick summary of what Abraham and Sarah went through before Isaac was born, and what their goals and purposes and the direction of their life had been. So with that firmly in mind, we come to the story here, excuse me, of Isaac being adult and time for him to have a wife. And that gets back to where I started. Uh, what is he looking for? We're going to find some jewels in here of some of the things that were desired, were looked for, and wanted. Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Eternal had blessed Abraham in all things. He had children, he had riches, he had anything you could want pretty much as a human being on this earth. He had been blessed in all things. And Abraham said to his eldest servant of his house that had, that had ruled over all that he had. Now here is a servant of Abraham who had been there long-standing, knew the ins and outs of Abraham, his life, his history. I'm sure it had been recounted to him many, many times what Abraham and Sarah had gone through and the promises God made and then how Isaac was finally born, how he had grown up, and how special they had looked upon this son because he was a miracle directly from God. No other way to put it. Everything about Isaac's beginnings came through parents who had been 
steered, led by God, had followed God, and then blessed by miracles. So understand the things that might go through this servant's head. And he wasn't just any camel driver. He was the one that Abraham had put over all his wealth, all his flocks, all his herds, all his servants, and everything. His entire empire, if you want to call it that. This man had been the overseer of all that. So he was highly trusted, and he was going to be given a charge here, a responsibility. He says, put you, I pray you, your hand on my testicles. That's the way it reads in the Hebrew. We might be a little, <laughs> don't say that uh, in our society today, but they spoke that way and that's the way God spoke. Now the handshake was utilized then, even in Jeremiah we recently read where it says our leaders in their hand to sell us out to the Assyrian. So handshake deals were made as deep, not as responsible as this one here. He was to put his hand on Abraham's private parts and swear. Now, when Abraham asked him to do that, without yet explaining what he wanted, this man knew the culture, he knew the, time, the times he was living in, and what this meant. It meant, I'm laying on you something that is as... What is about to happen here, you had better take seriously. Handshake. And I will make you swear by the Eternal, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth, now, it doesn't get any more serious than that. That's pretty powerful. You shall not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife to my son Isaac. Now, this was not a racist statement. It had nothing to do with that. What we're reading here is a spiritual analogy now, it may have had some racial ramification then, but in a spiritual sense, it doesn't at all. Let me show you that before we go on, because it needs to be very clear. Uh, let's go to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. And verse 28. <clears throat> Well, let's start in 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, nothing racist. There is neither bond nor free. doesn't matter whether you're physically a slave or whether you're not. There is neither male nor female, so it's not sexist at all. For you are all one in Christ Emmanuel. It doesn't matter what race, it doesn't matter what your social stature, it doesn't matter sex. If you're a human being and you seek Christ, he says you're all one, you're all the same. 
When God looks at it, He doesn't see male or female, black, white, yellow, brown. He doesn't see whether you're a slave or a free man. He only sees you as a child of God. That's His viewpoint. It's a spiritual thing here. So we're all the same, right? All exactly the same. Now, I'm not going to go to Romans 11 and give a full ex explanation of it. <clears throat> but he makes it very clear that the Gentiles were grafted in and that they became the same as Israelites in a spiritual way. Now, there may still be differences between males and females physically, between different races physically, between our status as slaves or free men physically, but from a spiritual viewpoint, there is no difference whatsoever. God is not a respecter of persons. He created us male and female with a great purpose in mind. He created the different races with a different purpose in mind and loved them all. He allows political differences, but He loves us all. So there's no difference that way. <clears throat> and we are to understand that when we analyze this not just as a physical story, <clears throat> but as a spiritual story. And that is that the Father didn't open it up just to a specific family physically, but He opened it up to all mankind to find a bride for His Son doesn't matter. Our status as a human being, this is a spiritual thing. So it becomes not then a racial matter, but a like-kind matter. So let's view this in, in uh, Genesis 24 as a like-kind thing as opposed to a racial thing. He wanted his son to have like-kind. Even as Christ, when he marries his bride, is looking for like kind. So it doesn't matter where we start as male or female. It doesn't matter about race or any of those things. All that matters is holiness and righteousness. All that matters is that we be like Christ. That's what counts. It's the only thing that matters. So these physical things we can cast aside in terms of this story, because it is a picture and a metaphor or a type of the Father in heaven looking for a bride for his holy, righteous, number ten son. Number one son in one way, but a, a ten on the scale, if you will, as we look at it today between humans. So this was very, very important. And when the God the Father and His Son at His right hand begin to look for a bride of 144,000, they want like kind to, for them to be as Christ is. That's why it says it doesn't matter what race or what sex you are. What matters is whether you think like Christ, whether you bring every thought into His captivity, whether you walk as He walked, in the way of holiness and righteousness, because number one on his list of things he's looking for in a bride is like kind, to be holy and righteous as he is holy. So view that, this, from that perspective. 
Go to my country, go to my kindred, take a wife to my son Isaac. It's a family thing. So, as the father and the son look for a bride for Christ, they want people who either, who will be a part of his family, like kind. Doesn't matter what their physical status was here, but did they become qualified to be part of the family of God? In fact, the wife of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what he's looking for. So, considering this analogy, we should be able to see very clearly why Abraham laid this on his servant as heavily as he did. This is very, very important to me, Abraham said, as a type of the Father in heaven. Verse 5, And the servant said to him, What if the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land? You're sending me to the land where you came from. You're sending me to a people I do not know. I don't even know where I'm going. And this is your son Isaac. And I can't just bring any old woman back here. I've got to find one that you and Sarah and Isaac are going to accept. Can you imagine the perplexities that were going through this man's mind as he put his hand between Abraham's legs and swore to God in heaven that he would come back with a suitable bride for Isaac from among people he did not know and not even sure geographically where he was headed. Now, Abraham, I'm sure... Gave him some details before he left of where, you know, get the, get the camels ready. You're going, and uh, they're at such and such a place. So you go there. It would have still been very, very difficult. It's difficult for us, even if we go out somewhere looking for a mate just for ourselves. It's difficult. How difficult would this have been? How insecure and uneasy would this servant have been, especially considering the family background here and all the miracles and how many times he had sat and listened to this story. And now it fell on his head. Scary business. What if the woman, what if I do go? What if I find one? What if she's everything you're looking for? And then she says, not on your life, buddy. I ain't leaving my ear. I like it here. I'm not going. you got to have travel how far? No way. I'm staying here. Abraham, I found one. She won't come. See what he was worried about? He was scared to death. Must I needs bring your son again to the land from whence you came? He said, I'm just, here I am, I'm saying, there's a guy named Abraham, he's kin to you, and he, he has this son, Isaac. And I'll tell you, this Isaac, he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, he has a big horse, and he, he's, he's got it all. And they say, yeah, right, mm-hmm. I've heard that one before. If he found the kind of girl that Isaac might want, or that Abraham and Sarah might approve... 
I suspect that those parents would have been approached by other possible suitors before that. If she was all that much, then there had to be some other hats in the ring, you'd think. So he's worried. Man, it's going to be impossible to find one. If I do, what if she doesn't want to come? And Abraham said to him, Beware that you bring not my son there again. You're not going to back, you're not taking Isaac with you. You're not going to come back and say, I found you one, you got to go see her. We're not going there. He's staying here. You can't take him back there and prove that he's everything you say he is. They didn't have pictures then, just his word about what Isaac looked like, how he was, what he would be. That's all the man had. But if you think you're taking Isaac with you, he's my precious son that God gave me, and I'm not going to put him through the dangers of travel and everything. You just got to find a woman that you can describe Isaac to, and she'll say, yeah, man, I'm going. Might be kind of hard to do. Verse 7, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spoke to me and that swore to me, saying, Unto you, your seed, will I give this land. He shall send his angel before you and shall take a wife to my son from there. So he said, hey, what are you worried about? The God that you've heard all these stories about my family and about my son for all these years, that God that you just swore to is going to provide Someone for you. Oh, you didn't put it that way. You had me all worried here. How am I going to do this? God will take care of the problem. Oh, okay. He still had misgivings, being a human, but he probably felt a bit encouraged and empowered by Abraham saying that. And if the woman will not be willing to follow you, <coughs> then you shall be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son there again. You're not taking my son. God will provide. But if perchance, for some, for some reason, God doesn't provide this woman to you, then that breaks the promise, breaks the oath. You don't have to worry about it. I imagine that gave him a sense of relief as he walked out of there and started saddling camels. And the servant put his hand under the privates of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning that matter. So he went through with it once he had been given that encouragement. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed. For all the goods of his master were in his hand, so he went with camel loads of jewelry, of gold, of silver, of gifts, and presents for the girl's family and for her. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. So he had gone probably quite a way, if we understand geography better than we used to, and where what is better than we used to. This was probably quite a trip. <laughs> those, ca those camels may have been even on boats for a while. And he made his camels to kneel down 
without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time the women go out to draw water. So, like some guys would go to a church or a bar or a county fair or whatever to, to look for women, uh, he went to this city that he'd been told to go to, and there was a well out there where the women would come in the evening to draw water, so he thought, this is a good place to look for women. It's kind of different society than we have today. And he said, now here's the way he went about it. O eternal God of my master Abraham, I pray you, send me good speed this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. So he opened his search, once he got to the right area, <coughs> with prayer. Ask God himself, not just Abraham's prayer, but his own prayer, that God would bless Abraham. He didn't necessarily ask for blessing for himself, but he knew Abraham was in a good relationship with God, so he asked him to bless Abraham through him. That's a good way to phrase our prayers a lot of times. God bless so-and-so. If you can use me to do it, that would be wonderful. That's kind of the way he approached this. Now let's see some of the things about the bride, because God has been invoked here. God has been invited into the picture. He has been asked by Abraham, by Sarah, I'm sure by Isaac, and now by this servant, that God would provide the mate for Isaac. So this bride then needed to have the qualities that God would have in mind for the son of Abraham or for, again, the son of God. If he was asked to provide, he would provide those things that would please his son. You and I are candidates to be part of the bride of Christ. Certain qualities are being looked for in us if we're to be the perfect bride for a number ten. <clears throat> it came to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down your pitcher, I pray you, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. Let the same be she that has appointed for thy servant Israel, Isaac, and thereby shall I know that you have showed kindness to my master. So the first quality that was being looked for here then was a girl who had an attitude <clears throat> that she would be willing to water his animals, to provide water perhaps for him as well. So the very first quality that surfaces here is going to be someone who is service-oriented, someone who is not selfish, someone who is willing to give whatever effort, work, service that, needs, that can be offered to someone in need. That resounds with a lot of scriptures about our attitudes and our approach and what we ought to be. So, even the servant understood that. <coughs> he wanted some kind of a sign that that would be it, and it was a sign of service, a sign of a willing heart and giving 
that this individual would possess. Verse 15, And it came to pass, before he had done speaking, that, behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of uh, Milcah, the wife of Naor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. So, God answered this right away. He provided this girl. She came out with a pitcher on her shoulder. She was going to get water not for the servant, not for his animals, <coughs> but for her household and perhaps her animals. And the damsel was very fair to look upon. So Christ is going to be looking for a bride that is beautiful. The beauty of holiness is the first beautiful characteristic, of course, that he is looking for, not necessarily physical beauty. Beauty is from within, and beauty comes through the eyes and through the service and through the mind. So we look at physical beauty in our culture more than God does. But when we examine Christ and what he looks like in Revelation 1 and other places, he's beautiful too, both in appearance as well as in character. <coughs> so this girl had to have all those things. She was also physically beautiful to look upon. A virgin, unspoiled, clean, pure, not having been involved with all kinds of lovers out in the world, but pure. Neither had known, had any man known her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. So this had to be somebody who had been trained properly, someone who had very strong moral principles, uh, very high standards and goals in life. She had to be someone who could be provided pure and clear and clean to Isaac. So that is the first thing beyond the attitude of service that is mentioned here. So she went down, and she was doing her job. She was very responsible. She wasn't cussing and screaming and in a bad attitude and pouting about having to go down and bring water back to the family. She was going with apparently a very good attitude. <clears throat> Had she been pouting and griping and complaining, I don't think the servant would have given her a second look. She was going very responsibly about her duties. <clears throat> okay, and the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray you, drink a little water of your pitcher. So here's the test. On those days, they had wells that were, I don't know how far across, but usually they had to have a trail going down circular around the outside of the well that you walked down into the well till you got down to the level where the water was. You dipped it out and had to carry that heavy water round and round till you got back to the top. <clears throat> and then you had to carry it to wherever your family was living, however far that might be. I've seen people in Africa doing this, carrying jugs of water on their head for miles, literal miles, to take back to their cardboard shanty so they'd have water to cook with. 
So he's asking for something that she's worked to attain. He watched her go down. He watched her fill. He watched her come back up. And when she got to the top, he says, Can I have some of your water? Go away, strange man. Who are you? I have never seen you before. Why would I give my water to some rank stranger? Besides, I don't even speak to strangers. It wasn't her attitude at all. And she said, Drink, my lord. Drink, master. I will be hospitable. And she hasted. She wasn't begrudging. She hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. So here's someone she'd never seen before, looked strange to her. He may have been the same race, being part of the same family, but from a totally different area of the world now, and probably had different clothes, different accent, looked strange to her. But she didn't hesitate. She had been trained all her life to be a server, a giver, a helper for anyone in need. Quite an attitude. How often do you see this? <coughs> and when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have done drinking. Now she did immediately and in haste what she was asked to do. And then she said, Sir, Lord, Master, tell you what I'll do now. I'll let your camels, who've gone across a lot of area here with no water, drink with water I bring them until they can't drink anymore. And camels can drink a lot. And she had to carry every ounce of it out of that well with her own hand. What did Christ say of us? That a wicked servant only does that which is asked of him, but a profitable servant goes above and beyond. Rebecca sure fits that one. This, this worked out really good, didn't it? Wow. How many people do you know or have ever met but if you ask them something, would grudgingly maybe give you that, or maybe even cheerfully give you that. But how many, how often, have said, I'm going to go above and beyond. I'll walk the extra mile. I'll turn the other cheek. I'll give what's not been asked of me. Just hang on, mister. Don't do a thing. Sit right here. You're tired. I'll go water your camels. Incredible attitude she had. And when she had done giving him drink and said, I will draw for your camels till they're done drinking. She hasted. She didn't go slowly about this. And emptied her pitcher in the trough and ran again to the well to raw water and drew for all his camels. But, so she didn't even do it methodically. She hurried. She ran up and down the well to get water for these camels. Someone willing to go way above and beyond for someone that she did not even know. And the man wondering at her held his peace. He was sitting there thinking, I've never seen anything like this. I come to a strange land. I sit down by a well thinking women might show up. And the first one I see, thank you God, 
says, sure, have some water, and I'll water your camels. And he was sitting there saying, I, I mean, he was probably just absolutely in wonder and amazement that anyone would have this attitude. Remember all the people that walked around, the guy that had been beaten, and finally the good Samaritan came and took care of him? Pretty rare. Most everybody walked around him, minded their own business, and went on. Somebody came along with compassion and feeling, kindness, and took care of someone who was of a different race even there. <clears throat> so he wondered and held his peace to wit whether the Eternal had made his journey prosperous or not. So he's sitting there thinking, I ask you to send me one, and here comes this girl, and she does all this. Is this the answer to my prayer? Is this the answer to Isaac and Abraham's prayer so quickly? And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man took a golden earring of a half shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands, ten shekels weight of gold. So, pretty heavy gold necklaces and earrings. He thought about it, and he says, man, the, she's gorgeous. She's serving and giving. This must be an answer to prayer. So he grabs into the saddlebag, gets out these gifts, and puts them on her. And said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, I pray you, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge in? So now he's really getting pushy. He's not just asking for water. Who's your family? And can I come over and spend the night? How many people in our culture today would make that statement, ask that of someone? Now, he's wanting to know who she is because he was told specifically, go to my family and find a mate for my son. And at this point, he'd seen a, a beautiful woman, he'd seen a beautiful attitude, but he didn't even know who she was. So he gave her some gifts, very expensive gifts, and then asked that question. <laughs> if you're going to ask this kind of a question, who are you and can I come to your house? Maybe you better grease it a little bit with some gold. Whose daughter are you? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bore unto Nahor. So she explains who she is. She hasn't even asked him yet who he is. He asked her. She said moreover to him, We have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. We can take care of you. We can take care of your camels. You're welcome. So here was somebody who was hospitable. You read of that in the New Testament as well. <coughs> and the man bowed down his head and said, Praise the Lord. <laughs> here's, a, here's a beautiful girl with a beautiful attitude. She's from the right family, and she invited me home. He must have been feeling pretty good about then. He'd been one of his biggest concerns at the first had been, what if she won't come with me? What if she's obstinate? What if she's selfish? What if she says, nah, I ain't going back there? Now, this one was had a very willing attitude so far with everything that had been asked of her and even beyond what had been asked. So he said, blessed be the God of my master Abraham, who has not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. 
I being traveling, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So he recognized that God had guided and led his steps and had taken him to the right family. Now, he was going a place he didn't know, to a city he didn't know, and he was led directly to the right place. Seek, and you will find. Ask, and it shall be given. Verse 28, here again, this girl gets around. The damsel ran and told them of her mother's house these things. She wasn't reluctant. She didn't say, follow me, we'll walk home and I'll introduce you. She ran. Said, I've got, hey, I just invited a stranger, somebody I didn't ever know, and she's got these gold bracelet as she gesticulates wildly about this guy that gave her these things, gave her an earring. She ran. She was excited. She had zeal. She had energy for being, as it turned out, a bride for Isaac. We are to be zealous and excited and running, seeking with all our hearts to be the bride of Christ. <clears throat> this story is incredible when you break it down. Verse 29, And Rebekah had a brother, and his name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man to the well. This is an enthusiastic family. She comes running in, says, I've got a stranger out here that watered my camels, and he gave me these. Go see him. So Laban, her brother, ran out to the well, however far it was. So this family had been reared correctly. They were all very willing to give, to serve, to help, to be hospitable in whatever way they could be. So it wasn't just her, but her family as well that she came from. God tells us to look where we came from there in Isaiah 51 that we read at the very beginning. Look to where you came from. And it came to pass, when he saw the earring and bracelets upon his sister's hands, and when he heard the words of Rebekah his sister, saying, Thus spake the man to me, that he came to the man, and behold, he stood by the camels at the well. So he heard the story, he saw the gems, the, I mean the, the gold, and then he, he said, i got to meet this guy. And he said, Come in, you blessed of the eternal. So they also had some religious understanding and background here as well. You're blessed of the eternal. How did, why did he say that? Because you found us and we're great, therefore you must have been blessed? No. He heard the story. He saw that the man had riches. He saw that he was there for some purpose. And he said, God must have blessed you in your endeavors. <laughs> Therefore, why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and room for the camels. Uh, we've, we're taking care of everything. We've got a place for you to stay. We've got the, we'll take care of your camels. Not a problem. Everything's going to be hunky-dory here. Let's skip down to verse 40. Uh, he's telling his story about how he had come. And he said to me, The Eternal before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son of my kindred and of my father's house. So they had 
swap stories about Abraham and how they were kin, and you're part of the family. And he's using Abraham's name here as well as God. You see, he's got to, he's got to sell something, too. He's got to sell to this father and mother and this daughter that she ought to leave her family and go marry Isaac. So he uses more than just his own authority or his own presence, but he uses God and he uses Abraham as his authority for what he is doing. Puts God into the picture. Then shall you be clear uh, from this my oath when you come to my kindred. So he tells the story of everything that Abraham had told him. I'm not going through every verse of it here, but to pick out some highlights. So he's saying here that God sent me and that your daughter is to be a gift from God. Now, how do you go higher than that? Pay attention here now, dad and mom and daughter. I was sent here to bring a gift from God. This is pretty special. Now, the servant understood how special Isaac was to his parents and to God. Now he had to lay it on this family, <clears throat> how special the daughter would be to be asked to be the bride of Isaac. And how God said, if she doesn't come with me, <laughs> I'm in trouble. But I don't have to worry about it because I'll be freed from it. Anyway, I came this day to the well and said, O Lord God of my master, are you going to tell him the whole story? Do you prosper my way? Behold, I stand by the well, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes forth to draw the water, and I say to her, Give me, I pray you, a little water. And she says, Both drink you and your camels. He's rehearsing the whole story because he's setting the stage for saying, I want to take your daughter home with me to my master. Let the same be the woman whom the Lord has appointed out for my master's son. So he's telling him, hey, God did this, I didn't. You're not, sending, you're, you're not sending your daughter because of me, you're sending it because of God. And before I had done speaking in my heart, here comes Rebecca with a pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down, she gave me water, she hasted, fed my camels. And I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And then she filled him in on that. And I gave her these gifts. I bowed down my head and I worshiped God. I said, Thank God you've brought me Rebecca. Now, this is putting a lot of pressure on the parents, isn't it? Thank God you brought me this woman. And they're going to say, Did God do this? Did this man come from God? Why me, Lord? you ever say that? I've said it many, many times. Why me, Lord? But if your mind is open, if you've been called, it's you. Maybe why hasn't been fully answered, but it's you. And now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. If this isn't an answer from God, if your daughter isn't the greatest thing since sliced bread, he's laying it on. If, if, this, if this isn't the one God sent, then there must be somebody else there to the right hand or the left hand that qualifies better than your daughter does. I'm sure he said this with all diplomacy and tact, but 
He's, he's pointing something out here. You have a wonderful daughter. This must be the best one around. She's an answer to prayer. How can they turn this down? He's a pretty good politician. See why Abraham put him over all his things, all his empire? <clears throat> then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceeds from the eternal. We cannot speak to you bad or good. This is obviously from God. The way it happened, the way it worked out, it has to be from God. This, this just couldn't have happened any other way. After he told his story, they bought it. Our daughter has to be a gift to Abraham's son. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Eternal has spoken. Well, they believed God too, didn't they? They <clears throat> believed God was involved. They accepted things as laid out for them. It came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the Eternal, bowing himself to the earth, prayed right there in front of them. So they ate and they drank. <coughs> and then the parents said, well, you know, I, I believe this is of God, and, and we've said you can take her, but can she at least stay here at least ten days, and after that she'll go? I mean, this is kind of sudden. Uh, this is love at first sight from the servant to our daughter, and love at first sight from us by what God must have done. But can we at least just keep her ten days and, and you know, and say our goodbyes and, and all the things that we'd like to do? He said to them, 56, Hinder me not, seeing the eternal has prospered my way. God has opened this up. God has done this. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Just get it done. When God gives us instruction in His Word, He expects us not to hesitate, not to wait, not say, well, I'll have to wait until my finances are in better shape, or I'll have to wait until the son is born, or I'll have to wait until grandma dies, or I'll have to go try my oxen. Those excuses were given in the Old and in the New Testament to Christ, and he says, let the dead bury their dead and come and follow me. He wants no hesitation. He wants us to obey and do it now and get on with the program, not wait until things are right for us. Because if we wait until things are right, it'll never happen. When God gives you knowledge, understanding, shows His will, He expects immediate compliance. <coughs> Hinder me not. And they say, we will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. So this isn't a situation where the girl did not have some input. She was going to be asked if this was okay, could... Could she go right away? They called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. She had been impressed by the story as well. But she had a free moral agency. She could have chosen. She could have stamped her foot and planted all four feet and said, I don't want to follow God. I want to follow Satan. <laughs> I don't want to leave this world. I, want, I like it where I am. Why should I go look for something that's hard to prove anyway and I haven't even seen God or His Son? Why would I want to go be His bride? I think I was evolved anyway. 
there is no God. And she could have had all kinds of different attitudes. I'm just throwing in a few modern ones. But she believed God too. This was something that she could see God's hand in. So she, in her free moral agency, said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servants, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, You are our sister, be you the mother of thousands of millions, and let your seed possess the gate of those which hate them. <coughs> so obviously the servant had told the whole story of Abraham and Sarai being old and not having children, and how God, by an absolute miracle, had caused them to be able to have children, and how Isaac had grown up, and how the whole story had gone, and, and the promises that God had made to Abraham about his children being as the sand of the sea, and so on. He told the whole story. And they bought that too. This is incredible when you stop to think about it. What if somebody walked up to your family in Indianapolis and said, uh, I came from a far country, and my master is a great man, and he wants a wife for his son, and I picked your daughter, I think she's good looking, and she has a nice attitude, I want her, I'm going to take her with me. You'd run into resistance in most cases. <coughs> this book is full of all kinds of things that just blow people's minds. They cannot believe it. They don't know the story. If you tell them the story, they won't believe it. Now, we have come to understand a lot of stories in this book, a lot of promises, a lot of prophecies over the last few years. And they have been explained to people who have a background in the church, who have a background with God, who know the truth essentially, and yet if you tell them some of the things in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets in Daniel actually say and what they mean, and take them for what they literally say about Jerusalem being a desolate place and so on, and they'll think you're absolutely nuts bringing such a strange, crazy story written in the Bible that they never saw before. So, things that God wrote that we overlooked, we now see. And people who even know the truth of God will poo-poo and say, that's crazy. <coughs> like the Passover, like the calendar, like a lot of these things that we've come to understand. How much crazier would it be to accept a story like this? God himself came to my master Abraham and told him that Isaac is going to be the father of millions and millions of people as the stars of heaven. And I want to, send your, I want to take your daughter to be Isaac's son, and they're going to say, What loony bin did you just creep out of? Believing God does not come easy. Acting on the things God says does not come easy. We are to look to the hole from which we were digged, to Abraham, Sarah, and to Isaac. And when Christ is looking for a bride, 
we have somewhat of an idea of what he's looking for. And a lot of those characteristics are brought out in this story, if you look at it from that angle. I'm already out of time. I didn't think it would take this long, but I was headed next to Proverbs 31. You all know what it says. <laughs> all the qualities that Christ is looking for in his bride. Let's turn back there just briefly. I can't stand it. He's looking for a number 10. I'm not going to get into uh, a dissertation or an explanation of all these things, but <coughs> verse 10, Who can find a virtuous woman for her price as far above rubies? Rubies, diamonds, gold may be precious to mankind, but a really, truly good, virtuous woman is far above those. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. Looking for a woman he can absolutely trust with everything in the universe. He doesn't have to worry about a thing. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her eternal life. He's looking for a bride who will be faithful and loyal and true forever and evermore and never do anything to harm him in anything she does or any attitude she has or in any way he speaks to her. <clears throat> she seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. Same ready mind and willingness that we saw in Rebecca. She's like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and gives meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She takes care of her family and her servants. She gets up early. She stays up late. She's very, very responsible. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She does a little more than some rednecks in our culture would allow a woman to do. She has business sense and capacity to run a farm. She girds her loins with strength and strengthens her arms, so she exercises her capacities, uses her talents. I don't think she was necessarily lifting weights here, but she is using her talents, not putting them in a basket. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her candle goes not out by night. As she grows, as she develops as a wife, she realizes she's doing good. She works at doing good. She lays her hands to the spindle. Her hands hold the distaff. She works hard. Rebecca ran, remember. She hasted. <coughs> she stretches out her hand to the poor. She reaches forth her hands to the needy. Hospitable, giving, serving, ready attitude. She's not afraid for the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She doesn't worry about winter. She doesn't worry about famine. She has laid up and prepared. Christ wants a woman who is that responsible. We see the end of this world coming. Are we being a responsible bride-to-be and preparing ourselves and preparing for our spiritual household that we be able to stand and not die like the rest of the world when all this comes down? We're not afraid of what's coming. We trust God and we serve Him and we know He will take care of us and our own preparations will stand us in good stead as well. 
She makes herself coverings of tapestry or clothing of silk and purple. She believes in quality and doing things well. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Behind every successful man there stands a very capable, very helpful, very supportive wife, if things are right. She makes fine linen and sells it and delivers girdles to the merchant, so she is looking out even beyond just her own home. She's out doing other things. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. <clears throat> we should be strong and honorable in terms of spirituality and holiness. She opens her mouth with wisdom. That's not like sticking your foot in it. That's like saying things that are wise and smart and that work. And in her tongue is the law, not an idea, not a thought, not something that you do once in a while when you like somebody. In her tongue is a law of kindness. It's a law she lives by. She's not bad-mouthing. She's not negative. She's not stabbing people in the back. She's not assassinating character. She has a law of kindness in her mouth. She looks well to the ways of her household and eats not the bread of idleness. She's busy. She's helpful. She's serving. She's giving. She's not just taking care of herself. She's taking care of those around her. Her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praises her. So she gets recognition for what she's doing. Many daughters have done virtuously. The servant said, I could look to the right or the left. I might find somebody else, but hey, this is the one that looks like God brought. This is the one God called. This is the one God directed me to. I'm going to dance with the one what brung me. Some have done virtuously, but you excel them all. Now, that's the one he's looking for. Christ wants a bride that excels them all. He wants one virtuous and excellent. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the eternal, she shall be praised. He's looking for a woman who reveres him, respects him, worships him, loves him, and will give herself totally and completely for him and for the family that he provides with her. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Give her golden bracelets, give her earrings, give her everything that you could adorn a beloved wife with. Because Christ is looking for a perfect number ten for himself, and he is going to adorn her with the finest things and the finest place and the best living conditions you could possibly know. That's what he's looking for. Next, I intend to address where is he going to find her.